Hello, everybody. This is a journey through history. Today is January 3rd, 2023. Time marches on. Uh, and tonight we are discussing the book Fallen Idols. I think there were some other words that came after that, but that 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 was the that was the crux of the of the title. And uh, I was asked to introduce the uh, the meeting tonight because Don Queen is uh, muted right now. So anyway, that's the intro. Uh, I didn't do any research on the author, so can't really offer anything on that. But I know. Uh, Don's got recordings that Brad ready to play, and uh, let's like, let's let's get started. I guess. All right, folks, I'm going to mute everybody, and then we'll get the recording going. Here goes the muting. An interview with Alex von Tunzelman. The future of statues, colon, a conversation with Owen Bennett-Jones. Alex is the author of Blood and Sand, Indian Summer, and Red Heat. Her writing can be found in numerous publications, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, and elsewhere. So what are the rights and wrongs of toppling statues, and what are the issues at stake? Why are statues put up in the first place? So, you know, there's sort of a variety of purposes. Normally, they're put up to make some sort of political point or social point or moral point. Um, so they're kind of really usually a piece of inspiring propaganda intentionally rather or intimidating propaganda in some situations rather than necessarily a kind of artistic endeavour. You say in the book that every culture does it, which is interesting and quite surprising, but you reckon that's right? Well, there's some form of statuary on every inhabited continent um, going back in history. But, of course, statuary does have different purposes. I mean, I differentiate between statuary and sculpture. And can you draw that distinction for us between statues and sculptures? Well, sculpture tends to be made for art, whereas honorific portrait statues tend to be made for purposes of uh, propaganda or inspiration. Right, but when they're pulled down, which we'll get on to, people often say, don't do that because it is a work of art, don't they? So there is a sort of confusion there. There is. I mean, and these lines are really blurred, you know. And I mean, some there are honorific portrait statues that are fabulous works of art, that are really important works of art, but... There are quite a few. Um, there's an awful lot of them that are really bad art. I think one thing I'm really keen on is not lumping all statues in together and actually seeing that these cases are. They depend on, depending on what the statues are, who put them up, why they put them up, how people respond to them, and of course, to the inherent quality of the statue artistically and culturally. You talk about in the book the great man or the great men theory of history and even sort of say it's not much different if it's the great woman theory of history so t tell us how that relates yeah you know, where that comes from and, and how that relates to statues well the great man theory of history was uh, expounded by thomas carlyle in the mid-19th century and his idea really was that the whole of history was nothing but the biography of great men he did say men quite deliberately i mean he did not include any women in his 
description of this great man theory. And the idea was really that it was just sort of these very dynamic individuals, either virtuous or in some cases not virtuous, who sort of drove the whole of historical progress. And really everybody else is sort of reduced to a little sheep barring around and just following these great historical currents. This was enormously influential in the Victorian era. Um, and what it really kind of, I think the Victorian kind of absolute fetish for putting statues up that began in the mid 19th century was very strongly influenced by it. So the kind of mid 19th to early 20th century saw a phenomenon known as statue mania, when really hundreds of statues suddenly went up in most sort of European capitals and also across North America and also in the sort of colonial possessions of a lot of those European countries in places like Delhi and Bombay at the time as well. And there was a sort of, you know, absolute wealth of them to the point that the artist Edgar Degas said you had to start putting barbed wire up around the edges of parks to stop sculptors from depositing their statues therein. So almost as if they were sort of dogs messing up the environment. And these really were mostly statues, again, of these great men, the idea of these great virtuous individuals that were driving history. And so they were usually supposed to be some sort of inspiring figure. And, you know, statues had sort of often previously being put up of, say, kings or military leaders, but suddenly we also had sort of inventors and social reformers and all sorts of figures that the Victorians admired for various reasons. And then rapidly what you find is that that starts to transition into something with a very distinctive political bent in different places. So in the early 20th century in the US, for instance, there was a huge kind of, you know, sort of wave of putting up statues commemorating Confederate leaders. Um, of course, this is a very, very long time after uh, the Civil War in the United States. It was really sort of between 1900 and 1920 and very much coinciding with the period of Jim Crow laws where racial segregation was being reimposed and reified across the southern United States. And so at that time, those statues were being put up really to kind of, you know, deliberately and, and in some cases in New Orleans, explicitly to shore up the cause of white supremacy. Those were the words they used. So statues quickly start having a political purpose. And then, of course, as we go further into the 20th century, we see, you know, that they were very much adopted by dictators and tyrants um, across the world. So you mentioned um, the Nazis and, uh, and the, the Soviets, particularly Stalin, put up thousands of statues. One of the points about having so many statues is that they become strangely invisible. Yes, I mean, the Austrian writer Robert Musel said there's nothing in this world so invisible as a monument, and, and you have a certain amount of sympathy with him. I've heard some writers, such as Gary Young, express that putting up a statue is a great way to forget somebody. I mean, when somebody is turned into a symbol by a statue, their real history is kind of flattened and they're just raised really as a as a figure for uncritical worship. And that obviously has the effect really of sort of removing all nuance and complexity from discussions about them. Well, let's get on to tearing them down. It is quite a a powerful thing to do. Now, when it comes to pulling them down, I think the you know, the important starting point is that there are some statues that everyone would agree should be pulled down, right? So Hitler after the Second World War, and you use the example of Jimmy Savile. I think you better just tell everyone who he was. 
and there's only one statue, but everyone agreed that should be torn down. Why don't you just remind us of Jimmy Savile? Well, I mean, I wouldn't want to go into too much detail to remind you, but he was a British television presenter um, and radio presenter. And after his death, uh, it emerged that he had been a, a sort of really prolific abuser of children. Um, prior to that, he'd been rather lauded. Um, he'd been sort of, you know, knighted, uh, despite actually advice that was given against that to Margaret Thatcher's government. He was, in fact, knighted. Um, he was really welcomed by the establishment and the royals and, you know, politicians and so forth. And this statue was put up of him in Glasgow outside a leisure centre. I mean, not a particularly good statue, but there it was. But of course, when these stories came out, there was really no discussion at all about whether this statue should go up and come, or stay up or come down or, you know, whether we were erasing history or whether we were, you know, destroying art or any of this stuff. The statue was simply removed because I think everybody understood that really to leave it up would be just a grotesque insult to his victims. So in certain cases like that, the moral case seems extremely clear to people. Um, but the interesting thing is when we get into historical discussions, it starts to reveal a lot more about perhaps people's own opinions, their own prejudices and their own likes and dislikes. That's right. I mean, because it is shocking to many in the West that some Stalin statues remained up. Uh, and yet they did. So could you just talk us through that? Why did they remain up? Where and why? Well, not very many remained up, and partly a lot of the reason that a lot of statues came down was actually the Soviets themselves during the de-Stalinization period. They actually took down, under Nikita Khrushchev, they took down a lot of Stalin statues. You know, that was something that very much he'd established, and the Khrushchev administration was really keen to actually refute that and, and get rid of that. So a lot of them came down in that respect, but they have, some of them extraordinarily have started going up again. There are various places in the world where Stalin statues have gone up again in the former Soviet Union. And often that's really connected with a sort of with how World War Two is seen in those places. So World War Two is known in Russia as the Great Patriotic War. And there has been a kind of rehabilitation of Stalin as a leader there, you know, who is seen as having defeated Hitler and the Nazis um, and very much sort of turned the tide of that war. So there are places where Stalin is still revered uh, from that point of view. I mean, you know, he comes out as really quite popular in opinion polls in Russia. Uh, so unsurprisingly, perhaps in that context, his statues have gone up again in certain places. And one even went up a few years ago in Bedford, Virginia, in the United States, um, a bust of Stalin. And that went up as part of a series of busts of allied war leaders. So they had Truman, Roosevelt, um, Churchill and then Stalin. And even though they had a plaque on that bus saying, you know, that Stalin had been involved in the murder of millions of people and, you know, all of this, it caused enormous controversy among local residents, and a great deal of unhappiness. And actually, it had to be taken down very quickly, and it has not been seen again. There's a sort of parallel with Churchill there, isn't there? Because, you know, Churchill, the great war leader, as far as many Brits, Brits and Americans are concerned, and yet also criticised, and yeah, his statues. Uh, being defaced because people say he was racist. So there's a contested history there. Stalin, great war leader and mass murderer. And in both cases, it's leading to these arguments. Yes, I mean, I think Churchill is really a kind of, you know, 
for a lot of British people is kind of such a sort of sacred figure. But there is definitely a kind of, should we say, a controversy brewing over that. And I think it's already started. And I think that conversation will certainly continue probably in a very heated way. And that's partly because, of course, a lot of people from other parts of the world, I mean, you know, one might name Ireland and India as obvious places, actually see Churchill very differently from the sort of very heroic view that has now become common in Britain. I mean, of course, if you actually go back to World War II and look at what Britons thought at the time, there was actually a real diversity of opinion on Churchill. And, you know, the historian Richard Toy has pointed out that actually the reaction to his speeches was far from universal adoration. In fact, a lot of people really criticised them at the time. And of course, we know that he lost the election after the war. But now that he's sort of been turned into this symbol of Britishness, he's become something else. And I think that's why now so contested that people at the time might well have had a much more complicated, nuanced opinion and a range of opinions on Churchill. But now that he's become this kind of symbol of Britain, then that discussion has moved on a little bit. And now it becomes really about, you know, whether it it becomes a sort of cultural discussion about whether you love Britain or hate Britain. That's how it's often framed, which, of course, isn't a discussion at all. You can have a, a discussion, a sort of intelligent, critical discussion about Churchill without in any way changing your feelings of patriotism or otherwise. So to summarise what you're saying, putting them up is very often political in some way and tearing them down is very often political in some way. And now we get on to the arguments against uh, pulling them down and many of those arguments you don't like. So let's just run through them. I mean, one of the points made by people who say don't tear down statues is you're erasing history. I think Boris Johnson, the British Prime Minister, used the phrase, you're editing history. Uh, How good an argument is that? I mean, it's a really poor argument, um, because statues aren't history. I mean, you know, I'm a historian, all us historians work, we're not sitting there in our offices chipping away at statues. That's not how we work at all. You know, history is contained in documents and archives. And, you know, then it's analysed in books and documentaries and all sorts of ways. And, you know, in fact, and fiction. Um, And, I mean, statues are a form of historical storytelling, but they're certainly not history. Um, They're very largely propaganda. I certainly think Boris Johnson, for instance, would not make the argument that it was erasing history to take down a Stalin statue um, or to take down busts of Hitler after World War II. I think he would not make that argument about those things. And therefore, that is not an argument about statues. It's What his point is, is that he's uncomfortable with people questioning this specific history. Right, because that was in the context of uh, Colston, wasn't it? Why don't you just talk us through the Colston case, which was so controversial here in the UK? Well, the Edward Colston case is so complicated and so fascinating. So Colston was um, basically, he was deputy governor for a while of the Royal African Company. Now, that was the company set up by the British monarchy, really, to uh, to have a monopoly on the slave trade in the early years of that trade. So Colston was very, very high up in that. As I say, he was deputy governor, and you can think of that sort of as CEO because the king was the governor and obviously not really an executive officer. Um, So he ran that. He also had shares in it. Um, He participated for many years in slave trading, made a huge amount of money. Um, And then he was a great, he used that money for a 
for a lot of philanthropy in Bristol. He didn't have any children um, and he didn't marry. So instead, he sort of endowed lots of institutions and schools and so forth. Um, so he was seen as this very great philanthropist. But what happened with his statue? So he he died um, very early in the 18th century. And then in 1895, so sort of 170 plus years later, a Bristol merchant called James Arrowsmith um, put up this statue of Edward Colston. And really, this is a case I was talking about before about how it's often zealous individuals that put up a statue. And he tried to raise the money through public collection. And really, that came to almost nothing, basically, probably had to pretty much pay for it himself in the end. Um, and the reason he put up that statue of Colston was because at that time, there was a great anxiety about the rise of socialism. Arrowsmith was very anxious about that too. And it was, so this was an attempt to reassert the idea that you didn't need socialism. What you could have was this sort of more, rather more paternalistic culture of, you know, philanthropy by great men and that this would be the better way forward for a society um, and for a community like Bristol. Um, now, of course, that was ahistorical completely because Edward Colston lived long before the word socialism had ever been heard and would have had absolutely no idea what any of this meant. But this was the use of Colston for those ends. But the fascinating thing is when that statue was put up, the fact that Colston was a slave trader was very problematic because by that point, the late 19th century, the British Empire no longer traded in slaves, had banned that a long time before, and in fact had reinvented itself really as the world's premier anti-slavery force. That was now sort of almost articulated sometimes as the point of the British Empire was to fight slavery. So it couldn't be mentioned that Edward Colston was a slave trader. In fact, if anything, that history had to be erased to put the statue up. So when it was dedicated, there was no mention of his slave trading at all, apart from one tiny aside by the mayor of Bristol during the dedication speech, where he said that some of Colston's trade was with the West Indies. So I suppose if you were listening really hard and thinking, you might have figured out what that meant, but, but no real clue on that front. Um, so this statue was put up, you know, with no recognition of that at all. And actually, it was only sort of in the 1920s that a, a critical biography of Colston was published by, by a reverend in Bristol, which started to bring back that story of slave trading. And that's really when a conversation started about, hold on, you know, is Colston really this great hero that we in Bristol have sort of cracked him up to be in very, very recent history? Uh, so that was in the 1920s. So really, it then took 100 years to get to the point where the statue was taken down. It's a very long historical progress of discussion. Second argument that you don't like, which I think many people would quite like, is, <laughs> is, is, is you know, you can't judge people by today's standards, people from the past by today's standards. So people arguing against statues being pulled down would say, look, he was a man of his time. It's, it's, it's wrong to judge someone by today's standards. Therefore, you can't tear down that statue on the grounds that their views have become unfashionable. And I also have a problem with the idea that so-and-so, you know, whoever it was, was a man of his time, in that I think it makes a huge and quite wrong assumption about history. Times don't have opinions. People do. And if you look at someone, say, like Cecil Rhodes, 
it's completely absurd to say Cecil Rhodes was a man of his time. He was, I mean, actually something that his critics and his fans agree on is that he was completely exceptional within his own time. He was far outside the norm. Rhodes was somebody whose opinions on race, for instance, were extraordinarily extreme, even by the standards of other white men of his time. Um, and certainly his actions were also extraordinary and extreme. Um, so if you're talking about him as sort of some sort of standard bearer of his time, he certainly wasn't. And he was very, very widely criticised by many of his contemporaries. And if we sort of say that, you know, someone, for instance, if we go further back in history and look at the slave trade again and say, well, you know, everybody believed in slavery back then, this was normal. There's a very interesting question of who we're including in everybody there, um, because I certainly think you could show that, for instance, enslaved people themselves very much did not agree with the slave trade. So why are they not included in this standard of the time? We also have no idea, in fact, what many working class people or women or many groups in society thought about slavery. And we know that even among the wealthy white men who provide the majority of historical documents that we now have access to, that in fact there was great discussion with between them throughout about whether the slave trade was acceptable. This was highly contested, even if you go back to the earliest days of it. There were always people debating whether this was moral or acceptable. So again, this is a real flattening of history. If we're going to say someone was a man of his time and we can't judge him by, by present standards. I mean, of course, you know, in historical terms, we'll try to some, understand somebody on their own terms, but a statue isn't doing that. A statue is saying we like this person now. It's a statue is for the present, not for the past. So people have a right to decide what stands in their towns and whether that really does reflect them. Reflect them today. And when you give the example of, you know, what about slaves? What did they think about uh, slavers? Does that mean that globalization has had an effect on this? Because it's no longer possible just to have one society venerating a certain amount of people without taking into account the views of people elsewhere in the world. That there will be moments when, of course, that is uncomfortable because certain nations have built up a certain picture of their particular national myths and leaders and so forth. Other nations will have very, very different views. But I think it's quite healthy to have that sort of debate and to bring multiple views into the discussion. Sure. It's interesting with the Cecil Rhodes case, isn't it? Because I think I'm right in saying that his statue in Cape Town was taken down in 2015. But the ones in Oxford University, or one in Oxford University, remains up. So what, what does that say about, you know, South Africa and the UK? Well, very different things, absolutely. And it's been very interesting watching the progress of those two statues. So the one you mentioned in uh, the University of Cape Town was this kind of seated statue of Rhodes outdoors, and it was very kind of prominent on campus. And when the Rhodes Must Fall campaign began there, um, actually, the University of Cape Town responded incredibly quickly, um, and there was, you know, there wasn't much need to discuss sort of whether Rhodes was good or bad. It was more, is this an appropriate symbol for us now? And very quickly, it was concluded, no, it is not an appropriate symbol for us now. And kind of, you know, now a kind of a South Africa that is obviously moving forward into a very different period. And actually, it only took a month for the authorities to agree with that and remove that statue, um, and it was very, very quick achievement. In Oxford, it's been a very different experience. So there have been kind of several waves now of sort of Rhodes Must Fall activism, um, you know, in around 2015, straight after the South Africa one. And then again, very recently, kind of in the last couple of years, um, during the pandemic, there were yet more protests about this. 
And it's been much more complicated because here it seems that there is still much more discussion about, you know, how we can view, much more squeamishness, should we say, about how we view Cecil Rhodes. But I think what's quite interesting is that we discuss Cecil Rhodes hardly ever in this country, apart from in the context of his statue. You know, his the history of what Rhodes did in Africa and, you know, his his political career and his private enterprise and all of this is not on school curriculums. It's not being discussed at all. And there haven't been really any very prominent recent biographies of him or biopics, not for many, many years. Um, and so really the only discussion of him is around this statue. And I feel like it's been very much co-opted into a sort of culture wars conversation. So there are, you know, you read these sort of defences of him and you realise that actually nobody in this conversation is terribly informed really about who he was anyway. So the conversation often ends up being kind of pretty empty um, because this is the only way in which he's discussed at all. Well, there is another interesting aspect to Rhodes in that quite a few prominent world leaders benefited from his foundation, didn't they? So I know Bill Clinton was a Rhodes scholar at, at Oxford, wasn't he? And I, I think there are other others and certainly are in, in Commonwealth countries. So, you know, it, it was a route to influence through getting that Cecil Rhodes scholarship in, in Oxford University. Absolutely. I mean, Rhodes left a huge amount of money to Oxford University and to the uh, Rhodes Trust, and which runs these Rhodes scholarships to Oxford University for uh, what he in initially, Rhodes intended them for what he called young colonists. So, you know, his intent in his will was quite clearly towards uh, young white men who were from the colonies to come back to learn in Oxford. But of course, that has been extended uh, far beyond that now. And in fact, you know, Rhodes scholarships are now all sorts of people from the Commonwealth and, you know, sort of former uh, Rhodes, various Rhodes territories uh, come to the UK and it's much more diverse. But I think a lot of the Rhodes Trust actually has had a very interesting journey itself. And I think it's been really quite progressive and interesting in terms of how it sees Rose's its legacy. I think it's highly conscious, really, that now part of its job is to make reparations because Rhodes extracted so much wealth from Southern Africa and that really using that wealth to try now to find ways to enrich Southern Africa and, you know, peoples from there is is a form, as they see it, of reparations. And I mean, that's also the truth behind the Mandela Rhodes Foundation, this sort of extraordinary foundation that Nelson Mandela set up with the intentionally provocative name of Rhodes and, you know, attached to it, was really to kind of, you know, to look at ways that you could really address that history and really, you know, make reparations for some of Rhodes's extractions. And that a decision should be made in, in, through, through a legitimate democratic process rather than people on the street just deciding to do it. What do you think of that argument? Well, I think a lot of people are more sympathetic to that argument because that seems sort of reasonable and balanced. And I mean, I agree that it is. I think that would be the ideal, would very much be that. I'm very much in favour. But the problem with the argument is that it often, again, is quite ignorant of what has actually happened. So, for instance, this was thrown at the people in Bristol who pulled that statue down a lot. And, of course, they four protesters did undergo a trial um, and were actually acquitted um, of any offences regarding that statue. Um, but I do think that the... Um, 
you know, the problem with that process in Bristol, as I said before we were talking about Edward Colston, um, that discussion about Colston had been going on for 100 years. And the discussion specifically about the statue had been going on for several decades as well. And there had been endless efforts to take that statue down through democratic process and, you know, with kind of the city of Bristol and the council and so on all involved. And there had been so much obstruction of that process, partly by various specific local councillors and so on, but also by, at that time, the Society of Merchant Venturers, which was sort of a Colston legacy society, which saw themselves as very much defending his legacy. Um, And there was endless attempts to do things like put a plaque up, which would be more explanatory on the statue and, you know, alter it in some way. And all of these attempts were stymied again and again by really quite undemocratic lobbying measures. So I think it's very difficult when you have a process that has been so drawn out and where discussion has been shut down again and again undemocratically to then say, well, you know, this just has to be accepted, this, you know, unfunctional process. I think there were hundreds of opportunities for the city of Bristol to do something about that statue in the 30 odd years before it was pulled down in a kind of more democratic way and those were obstructed. So I'm all for actually transparent public processes and all of that, but I think they have to be transparent, they have to be efficient, they have to work, um, they have to produce some kind of result and actually satisfy the community to some extent. So, So let me ask you, if you were on that committee, have you come up in your own mind with a formulation which would guide people as to what factors to take into account when deciding whether a statue should be pulled down or not and I know you're going to say it depends on each particular community in each context and each time period but still can you think at a quite an abstract level maybe of what factors what criteria should be used to make these judgments Yeah, I can a bit, actually. And I mean, yes, of course, I think it depends on each case. But I do think some questions that I would personally begin by asking, and I would encourage any such committee or community to begin by asking, are really to look at the history of that particular statue. Who put it up and why did they put it up? You know, why did it go up in the first place? What was the intention? Quite often, it's very different from what you think. Um, I would also encourage them to look at what that statue has become and how it's been used. So one controversy around Confederate statues in the US is that they have actually often become rallying points for the Ku Klux Klan and groups in society. Now that in and of itself makes them very problematic and makes them quite dangerous. You know, okay, we've decided that this statue is a problem for whatever reason. Then I think you can look at a range of solutions to that problem. There's lots of creative solutions. Thank you so much, Alex von Tunzelman. Very interesting book and very interesting discussion. Thanks. That's it. Okay. Hey, there he is. This is Don. Oh. Hey, Don. Hey, Don. Glad you made it back. I, I, heard, I heard, saw you leave. Well, I've been trying to get in with the, but my regular one, I couldn't unmute it again, so I finally got in on the phone. <laughs> Rock and roll. You're here. So, yeah. We just finished the recording. Do you want to lead the discussion? How you want to, how you want to play this? 
Well, uh, is Michelle here? She is not. She, was, she is not. Well, then. No, no. I will. We'll, we'll lead. Uh, did, how did everyone feel about it? And what was there? A, I think uh, Hollywood was uh, Ro- Churchill and Rhodes treated there. That was. As worthy of a statue. No answer. Say 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 that again. Uh, uh, were you asking okay. specifically? If you were going to set up a a community statue in um, in say Liverpool, the, mm-hmm. the those people were tried and acquitted. <clears throat> and yet they they care. That African Royal African Society took since over eighty two thousand people to slavery and twenty nine thousand of them died <laughs> on the right. trip. Right. So they they really did some bad things. And so whether did anybody not like the book? Let's start there. Well. I read one chapter. It's Joni speaking. I read one chapter. Um, I I didn't like the reader. Um, I couldn't understand her English too well. And you, did you not I, understand the reader or the what you heard tonight? Yeah. No, no. The the reader of the book. Oh, really? I had difficulty <laughs> in understanding her. Um, and. I guess right from the beginning, I really was not interested in statues. But then, I don't know if you wrote the thing that said, read chapters 9, 10, and 11. And I read the chapter about roads. And he had all this money, and he just, I I didn't like him. I just didn't, I know that he contributed uh, that he started the Rhodes Scholars thing. And I just, I was sorry that I had started to read it, but then I wanted to see what would happen. And, um, so I didn't read that, but then I was sorry that I didn't read the Robert E. Lee chapter. I still might. Um, because Robert E. Lee, his... Um, I think his grandson was a radio and television producer. And this gentleman, his wife was Janet Waldo, who was a fantastic radio actor. And, um, And I felt sorry for what uh, Bob Lee and his family had gone through because he wasn't racist. He just, you know, he was a real good guy. And it was very difficult for him to have to live with the fact that his, and I'm not sure, I, it probably was his grandfather, you know, was, was, um, a Confederate uh, person. 
like what uh, Robert E. Lee, he was sorry because his grandfather was a Confederate general. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, well, I think that people criticized him, and he was, he, he wasn't, he wasn't a racist. He was a, he was really a good man. He he, his grandfather? Yeah. I don't know. I, don't, I didn't read I don't remember chapter. either. Uh-huh. Oh, you, oh, you're thinking of the grandson. Yeah. Yeah, thinking of the grandson. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Okay. This is Betsy. I read the book, and I had to do it um, auditorily because Bookshare did not have it, unfortunately. And I understand about the reader. I thought she was boring, so I sped her up. Um, <laughs> some of their books they get nowadays on guard, the readers are. I've heard others say it, too. The readers just aren't as good as they used to be. But I like the book. Um, or no, this one. This one, that I, did I find it in Braille? I may have found it in Braille, actually. That's right. This one I was able to find in Braille from Bookshare. I liked it. It made me think a different way. Um, I didn't realize <laughs> statues were so important. Some of them, when they got torn down, it was such a riot. But I agree with the author. They're really not what makes history. History's still there, whether you pull it down or leave it up. But I understand the sentimental reasons for some of them. I actually enjoyed the book. It was different to have something different to think about. I read the book, too. It was another book I'm reading that the author's boring, but this one, well, I read it in Braille. It was good. Yeah, I agree with Betsy. I liked the book, too. I thought it was very thought-provoking. The arguments that she... Uh, pointed out that people use against taking the statues down and she really made you think about those art those art arguments and it, it made me feel I thought it was very thought-provoking it made me feel differently about about statues and uh, I, I think the main thing that I came away with is that statue tearing down a statue doesn't erase history um, destroying documents I think she said this one time in the book destroying documents erases history but tearing down a statue does not and and i thought it was also kind of interesting um i didn't know the things about trujillo and uh, cecil rhodes the appalling things that they did i'll never think of a rhodes scholarship in the same way now but um and also with the trujillo situation those statues keep going up and down depending on who's in charge of the government and because he's had some family members who uh, led the government after after him and when his family members are in charge the statues go back up again yeah uh are you through jenna i yes i'm i'm sorry no no it's all right uh I didn't want to interrupt you. We're still talking. Uh, this is Alan, and I, I thoroughly enjoyed the book. I, I, I thought it was. I thought it was very well done, and I, I, I thought the narrator was good too. I mean, I mean, the 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 book was written by a British woman. I thought I thought it was kind of nice to have a British woman doing the narration. I didn't I didn't have any trouble understanding her, and uh, I, I learned a lot about some people I, I didn't know anything about. So. Uh, that's that, that was what I enjoyed. I mean, that's that, that's why I'm coming to these meetings anyway, to try to get better acquainted with some historical stuff that I don't know. I know very little about. And 
I mean, it's, it's like anything else when you talk about whether you're talking about statutes or whether you're talking about what people think about somebody, you know, that the, the stuff can get very political in a hurry and it can get it can be very specific to uh, uh, to the time period when, when you're having your discussion and stuff. But I, the author just made some really good points about what kind of stuff you really need to focus on when you're trying to remember these people. And just because somebody makes a lot of money doesn't make them a good person. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, I mean, you know, everybody's heard of the Nobel prize and stuff when Alfred Nobel got all this money for dynamite and stuff. So, you know, you know, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of bad things were done with dynamite and, uh, and the roads the same way. I, you know, I, I didn't realize the guy's backstory and I, you know, I thought, I thought that was very interesting. And I, I thought the author just made some very good points. Uh, and I'm from the South. So, you know, I, I've, you know, I've been to Vicksburg National Park a bunch of times, and there's just statue after statue after statue, you know, and, you know, this, uh, a, a, a lot of, I think a lot of this stuff got erected because, you know, tr- trying to salve wounds and stuff by the fact that we lost a war that we, that we damn well needed to lose. I mean, I mean that's just <laughs> the fact of the matter, you know, and uh, uh, I don't know, and uh, pardon me for bringing this up, but I got tickled. When I was reading stuff about Trujillo uh, and the Dominican Republic and stuff, and, you know, and, and, and talking about his whole sexual thing and, and, and had all his phallic things, and, and, and I, I noticed that the author specifically used the word erection when they were talking about his, the, the statues created for him. I thought that was pretty clever and stuff. So, mm-hmm. but uh, uh, anyway, I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I thought this was a good choice. So uh, I'm sorry we don't have more people here that have read it that. Uh, uh, that, that feels similarly, but I, I thought it was, I thought it was very good. I, I learned a lot. So yeah. thanks. Yeah. Well, I, let me jump in here. This is Lynn. And, uh, I enjoyed the book too. It was, a, um, I couldn't put it down. Um, I didn't read it straight through, but, uh, took some breaks every now and then. Mm-hmm. And I guess it might be the only thing that I agree with, with Donald Trump about is, I'm just for leaving the statues up because the statues are up there and I want people to walk by and say, you know, why does that person deserve to have a statue? And in the hopes that they would get the story right, um, we have a, I guess it's an obelisk at the state capitol here on state capitol grounds. And it's it's not very tall. It can't be more than six feet tall. But it was put up during the segregation years um, of um, Jim Crow. And uh, it just recognizes, I guess, the, the loss of the Civil War. And... Uh, you know, it's kind of in a not really in a prominent place, but I wish that I don't really necessarily wish that people would take it down. I just wish that people would ask more questions about it. You know, um, most of the people in the book I I knew about, um, ever Cecily Rhodes, um, next time we go to buy a diamond for our girlfriends or pick out a diamond, we remember De Beers. 
um because uh cecily rhodes was that was his uh that was his baby uh he started de beers selling diamonds that's how he got his start um just truly amazed me that people could get so powerful that they could run their own countries and pretty much run the people in the countries. That's awful scary. Um, just to, to finish up here, uh, I um, had heard this before about what Germany is doing um, now that the Holocaust is over with and they're going around and putting plaques up um, and reminding people, you know, this particular spot got burned out because it was a Russian synagogue. It was, excuse me, it was a uh, Jewish synagogue or, you know, or something else here happened here or uh, Jews died here or, or um, homosexuals died here at this spot because, uh, uh, because of Hitler. Um, is people need to be reminded of history. Um, and for the person that brought the book to the, to the meeting, um, I just want to say thank you for bringing this book. Uh, it was very informative for me. Yeah. This was a really a pretty intense historical book on history, defining what history is and is not. And, of course, the statutes are not uh, the history. They are only uh, anymore in the books. And of course, it's bad to burn books as to tear down statutes in a way. But <laughs> that I was uh, talking... Uh, I was uh, in San Diego. I was chapter president and ended up being following of Jernigan at that time. But we went... I looked in the museum... And there, there was this painting by Velasquez, and it had an old man with a long beard comforting this little blind girl. And the, the plaque said that the blind girl represented ignorance, and the other was wisdom. And so, like we and Bob Dean got there, he called the museum, but he he went and asked them to take the painting out. Of course, they're not going to take the painting out. I didn't want to do that. I just wanted to just put some contrary material, but. Um, we uh, we never went anywhere with it. As it I went by the museum this other weekend, but I couldn't get anybody to go in with me. So <laughs> we, we we blind guy in a museum isn't uh, in a picture uh, uh, is not much good in an art gallery. But mm -hmm. uh, anyway, that um, was. Uh, but I I did uh, wrote a when I was doing articles for the. Um, a senior citizen program on their magazine, but uh, the first few professors that I interviewed were all Rhodes Scholars. <laughs> and one guy was a union man, he's pro-union guy, so they don't, they're pretty liberal on how they give out the scholarships now, I, I would say. They, 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 and, and a lot of people get them. That's, uh, a quick story here about uh, Rhodes Scholar here at uh, Florida State University um, a few years back, not that long ago. Um, very talented football player. And I forget his name. And uh, he became a Rhodes Scholar. 
Um, he was a, a black man. And what surprised me was for the longest time, uh, Rose scholarships were not given out to black people <laughs> until I don't know when they changed that, but they did finally wise up and changed it. But he got himself a Rhodes Scholarship, went on. Uh, he could have joined. So he went, played football, professional football for a year for a few years. So he had, he had a choice either, you know, get going, finishing up his Rhodes Scholarship or, or playing professional football. He played professional football for a few years and got him some good money and then got a scholarship. Uh, his Rhodes Scholarship, and now he is a brain surgeon. And he also uh, wrote a book about all th about how he did all this. And uh, he had his brains left. He's yeah. kind of a home hometown hero. Yeah. Hello, David. David. Yeah, I've been listening. I've been enjoying it. I did not finish the book, but I will. I'll have to finish speeding it up. I like the idea of Don mentioning materials to explain, you know, why the painting wasn't necessarily um, a good message today. I would think either the statues, either ought to go, I'll go in a bad rogues gallery of statues museum. They should put all those Confederate ones in the Museum of the Confederacy in Richmond, which is where they belong. Because, you know, if there's a museum to it, then that's where the statues should go. Right. Or they should put a bronze plaque on each statue explaining how mo mo how morals have changed, ideas have changed, history has changed. And these statues are a reminder that people once viewed things very differently. There was a big controversy in New Orleans when four statues were removed. I agreed with the removal of three of them. I had a concern about the one about uh, General Beauregard because he had come to the conclusion after the Civil War that slavery had been wrong. I don't think mm -hmm. I would have removed his statue in City Park. I think I would have put a bronze plaque explaining that even people that were once wrong are capable of being redeemed. It's a controversial mm -hmm. subject. I, I do, yeah. wouldn't want to debate it with anybody. But I'm, I was really mostly in agreement with this book that carved stone is not history. It mm -hmm. might be an icon of history, but it isn't exactly history. It you know it's a way of people, uh, especially in the South, trying to salve their wounds about losing a war that, as mm -hmm. Alan said, they perhaps should never have fought. For in the words of Red Butler, the South had slaves, cotton, and arrogance. The North had the trains. The North had, you know, had more states, more people, more industry. Um, valor and chivalry do not often a war win, um, especially in the 19th century's industrial era. You know, she, I've also thought for a while anyway that these statues should go into museums. But she, one of the things that she said in the book is that a lot of the museums really don't want the statues because they're so huge. Okay. Yeah. 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 Hmm. yeah. yeah. True. So recycle yeah. them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. yeah. Who was the Confederate grandson, Joni? You were mentioning a Confederate and the grandson. I must not have read that part. No, I, I was just talking about. I didn't read the Robert E. Lee thing, but Robert E. Lee. Um, I don't know if it was his grandson or great-grandson was a radio and TV producer. 
Wow. And they tr- they sort of downplayed the fact that 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 he was had been a uh, a relative of Robert E. Lee. Yeah, I and might his have name, to right. His the name was Robert E. Lee. I just said the sins of the fathers. Right. Yeah, you don't want that. Yeah. Was, he, was his name Lee as well? His name was Lee. Oh, Robert wow. Lee. I think it was actually Robert E. Lee. And wow. he was he was a wonderful gentleman. He was married to a radio actor named Janet Waldo. And he... Uh, she was a fabulous radio actor, and she was in TV, and she was in. Uh, she was, she played uh, one of the Jet, Jetson voices. She had a wonderful voice, and she, he, and she were a great team. He got wonderful parts for her, and everybody loved her, and I guess everybody loved him too in the um, performing arts. And um, she said they tried to always downplay the fact that they were related to Robert E. Lee, or that he was, mm-hmm. well, she was by being uh, a granddaughter-in-law or whatever. But never wanted to hurt anybody, got black people into more black people into radio and TV. And um, they were a wonderful, wonderful team. I think sometimes when one generation is so blatantly racist that the the following generation sometimes just says, it's so blatant. I, I grew up in like that. And it sometimes it's so blatant that you realize, no, this is just wrong. I can imagine. I guess we better hear Don's February. And I'm still looking for April's historic fiction novel because I don't want to do any more World War II. And that's kind of hard right now because so much is. <laughs> Everything's World War II. Now, yeah. World War II yeah. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> I'm drowning. I may have to go back, way back, and then maybe dig up an interview or do something different to go back and pull a book from years ago. If I can't find anything beyond this World War II phase, everything's going through. Well, there's a lot of, I think, somewhere. Yeah. What, what time is it? It's about five till the hour, so we'd probably better have your... Yeah, we got Yeah, this is the next one that we're for uh, next month. It's a very fun book. I think you'll like, like it. It's, um, it's about a, a, it's another Chinese... Uh, expatriate, but he, he did very. He grew up in atrocious poverty, and went to the ballet school, and then became a star in China. They invited him over to Houston, Texas, and he he defected. Oh, I think I met read this that lady. In, oh, you read that one? Not well, the then last of the, the dancers, the last of the dancers. Uh, the, yeah, Mao's last dancer. That's good. Yeah, his mm-hmm. wife, his son had hearing st- loss, and the wife gave up her career, and they had to get in, uh, cochlear implants for the son. His daughter, yeah, his daughter. Oh, it's daughter. Sorry, it's total, been a total, while. Almost profound deafness is what they said, 
and you know, uh, people are like it. It is different. It's different a glimpse into uh, Mao era China true. that we never get. You never believe it if it, it wasn't true. If somebody no, wrote a story, wouldn't. it was good. Because he he ended up as a stockbroker with millions. So anyway, let's let's hear the introduction. Mao's Last Dancer by Li Tsun-Sin, read by Gordon Gould. Library of Congress Annotation, memoir of a Chinese ballet dancer who was chosen from a poor commune at age 11 to join Madame Mao's dance school in Beijing. The author describes his childhood, rigorous training, cultural exchange with the Houston Ballet, and 1981 defection to the West. 2003. Sing's life story could well be a ballet. The performance would start in China as classical Western dance is being swept away in Chairman Mao's cultural revolution. Then, with Mao's wife restoring ballet to favor, fate would smile on a ten-year-old in a village. Young Li Sing would be discovered and turned into the greatest dancer in the land. Then would come a dramatic escape from the clutches of communism, and finally, in a land far away, there would of course be the happy ending. That land is Australia. It's a, it's a surprise at first to see Lee Swun Sing as the leading man in a classical ballet. After the likes of Nureyev and Barishnikov, who would have thought that the new prince at centre stage would be a former peasant boy from China? Has it been more difficult for you, coming from the Chinese culture, to know how to act as a medieval European prince? It was probably the biggest hurdle. Mao's Last Dancer by Li Tsun-Sin. DB 60921. This book contains 451 pages. Approximate reading time, 15 hours, 20 minutes. DB 60921. Mao's Last Dancer by Li Tsun-Sin. Read by Gordon Gould. It's 0921. Mao's Last Dancer. Reader is Gordon Gould. Is that M-A-O for Mao's? Yeah, M-A-O. Mao's Last Dancer. I'll look for it. That's one of my favorite narrators. I won't try to spell his name. Well, I can. That's one of my favorite narrators. You don't hear him much anymore. I think he's gone, but Gordon Gould is one of my yeah. favorite narrators from back when. Oh, I always underscore me. Yes. I'll find out if he's still alive. Um, <coughs> maybe he did this, but uh, my friend Derek Take, who used to work for the um, ASB Talking Book Program, Became very friendly with a lot of the wow, yeah, good readers good narrating for them. That's right. Yeah, he goes back a long ways. He does. He was good. Yeah. 
I'm yeah. looking forward to this. Ballet is one of my favorite subjects. <laughs> <laughs> I'll probably learn a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Music. Yeah. I know nothing. <laughs> yeah. It'll surprise you. It's, it's such an interesting, different story from a world we right. never right. know, know nothing about. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I, I know nothing about it. Yeah. So I, I'm yeah, looking forward to either. it. So. Yeah. This group makes me read books that I would have never thought of reading on my own. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I yeah. wouldn't have read it if <laughs> I can't enjoy well, it know, by I, accident, though. Yeah. I think one of the reasons why I didn't read the statues book is that I really, because I've never seen, I really don't know what statues look like, and I've never been able to relate to that. Right. I've never seen it. There's so many they things you can't when really never really yeah, very well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She did a pretty good job of describing some of them. Right. Yeah. I mean, and there's all types, Joni. I mean, I, I, I guess probably the most of the 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 ones that represent people. Just think of an oversized person, and and, you know, forms some particular way. I mean, they pose them in different ways. A A lot of the military people sometimes will be on a horse with a sword and stuff like that. Although they didn't really. They didn't really get into that much in, in, in this group, but uh, uh, you know, it, it, pro- probably whatever they they can do with the time that, that they can get the money to you know to pay for and you know uh, and come up with it. It's like like she said in the book. Th- th- there's all kind of things that go into to, went into the creation of these statues and stuff, and it's it it, it, it wasn't just always a pure thought about hey let. Let's make a monument to somebody in history and stuff. It, 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 there's a lot more of a backstory than that. So, yeah, but, uh, mm-hmm. but, uh, but anyway, yeah, I, th- I thought the book was great. It was. I, I think if I read it again, I would get even more out of it. Yeah. Yeah. There was so much to it. Yeah, and I, I just I, I knew nothing about a lot of those people and stuff. So mm-hmm. you know, it, it, it was it was it was really interesting. So. Yeah, me neither. They need to teach history a little differently than they do in the schools. Uh, tell me about it. Yeah, you know, they've really improved uh, at least right. I took the the history because I when I took antebellum South and South, that was the anti reconstruction kind of that we covered the reconstruction. And, uh, hey, Marilyn, how's it going? I'm doing good. Oh, Can I get back that? in? Somebody's on the phone, it sounds like. Oh, somebody's on the phone, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, but, uh, anyway. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you finishing up a meeting. The, the discussion of reconstruction down here in the South oh, is they're a pretty lot much done. So, <laughs> you, can, you can imagine, so. Yeah, I, I don't think they appreciate it. No, <laughs> no, no. But uh, oh, and, and that's—I mean—that's the whole thing about history. I mean, it, you know, the the way it's presented is it, going to be a rel- book club I go to every month. It's a history book so, club. Yeah. We all read a book and then talk about yeah. it. So, but uh, anyway, all right. Well, I'm all I'm right. gone, folks. I'm gone right. too. Okay. Well, thank you all for <laughs> coming. Thanks, Don. Thank you, Don. Thank, thank you. Great. Sorry, guys. I thought I was thank muted. You. Have a good night. It's okay. February seventh, right? On Sunday, guys. Okay. Great. Yep, I'll, we'll send out, yep. I'll send out the newsletter in a day or two, Johnny. So it's February seventh, I think. The 7th? No, it's the eighth. Oh no, I think she's talking about next month's history. Oh, but, February. Oh, for the book. This. Yeah, yeah. February seventh. Let's see. Let me check real quick. It's the seventh. Oh. Is it six or the seventh? One of the seventh. Oh. I think let's, it's the seventh. Let's check. 
<laughs> Hang on, give me one second here. I'll tell you. I finally got my braille calendar. I didn't get mine yet. It's the, it's the seventh, David. You're okay, right. Yeah. Seventh. First Tuesday of okay. February is the seventh. Okay. Very good. Sounds good. Okay, guys. Take care. Everybody stay okay. safe. All right. All right. Take care. Catch you, Catch you the next one. Happy New Year. Okay. okay. Bye. Yep. Bye. 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 Good night, everybody. I'm going to end it.